Welcome back to the Room Madness Podcast, the podcast for everyone who is crazy about rheumatology. My name is David Leverins, and I am a rheumatologist specializing in medical education, quality improvement, corny jokes, and sharing my over-exuberant enthusiasm about rheumatology with others. We're so glad you're here. If you are listening to this episode, you are joining part two of an ongoing conversation amongst the Room Madness leadership team, in which we are talking about the teams in the newly revealed Room Madness bracket. If you have not listened to part one of our bracketology conversation, please go back and listen to part one so you have an idea of what we're talking about. But this episode is going to cover the second half of the tournament meaning eight teams out of the 16 total teams in the tournament. As you heard in the previous episode, our conversation is going to make a few calls where we decide who we think might win each matchup. But please remember that we as the leadership team actually have no influence over the outcome of each of these matchups. We are on this uh, podcast having a conversation to demonstrate what it's like to debate these teams and to give everyone a little bit of a glimpse into what these teams are. But the Blue Ribbon panel is really the one that makes the calls that's actually going to decide the winners. So what you all have to do is you have to learn about each topic, especially by reading the scouting reports that will be released soon, and make your own predictions of who you think is going to win each matchup. So... We're so glad you're here. I'm now going to put you back into our conversation between myself, Dr. Aki Udupa, Dr. Didam Sagan, and Dr. Guy Katz, members of the Room Madness leadership team, talking about the second half of the Room Madness bracket. Well, let's move on to the second part of the uh, tournament, the other half. So um, if you're looking at the bracket or if you've seen it, we're in the top right now. Um, and we are going to be talking about glucocorticoids or steroids. So um, rheumatologists have a love-hate relationship with glucocorticoids. I've heard it said before that if glucocorticoids didn't have side effects, there wouldn't be rheumatologists, um, which I don't necessarily know if that's true now that, um, uh, but you know, it's, it's interesting to know that we've been using them for a long time and it's good to think about um, the implications of some of the trials um, included in this Part of the tournament. So we have two teams matching up against each other. Um, the one team is the uh, Samira trial. Um, the other team is the harms of short-term glucocorticoids. And I am going to save a lot of the details of these studies for those writing the scouting reports to see what they say about them. But the, the short version is Samira was a really interesting study called the steroid elimination in rheumatoid arthritis trial in which essentially they took a bunch of patients with longstanding rheumatoid arthritis who were able to achieve low, low disease activity on five milligrams of prednisone and tocilizumab. And they randomized these patients to either tapering completely off prednisone by reducing by one milligram every month over a period of six months or continuing prednisone at five milligrams daily. Uh, this is actually one of the few trials that have used some sort of standardized prednisone tapering regimen in rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and so it's just interesting from that standpoint to think about actually, you know, what would it look like in a trial stand in a trial setting to randomize people to discontinuing prednisone or not? You know, sometimes we take people off prednisone and 
Um, they hurt worse. And we're, we're wondering, is that just because of the withdrawal effects or what is that? Is that, uh, would that be there if we had actually continued the prednisone or is that just what would have happened anyway? Um, so it's interesting to think about. And essentially what this trial showed was that um, when you look at uh, DAS28 ESR scores, the scores were definitively worse in the patients that um, tapered off the five milligrams of glucocorticoids. Um, the patients did do worse. However, uh, still about two thirds of the patients who tapered off the glucocorticoids were able to stay in low disease activity without flare. Uh, there are far more patients in the group that stayed on the prednisone that were able to um, remain in low disease activity and um, did not have a flare, but still many patients that came off the prednisone were able to. So it's an interesting trial because you're still, you're left not entirely sure what to do with the results other than knowing the implications. And I think it's just, it's just good to know some of these numbers that, okay, we've got patients with longstanding rheumatoid arthritis on stable um, tocilizumab or, you know, a, a DMARD or a biologic DMARD essentially. And this is what would happen if we tried to taper them off prednisone. Um, and I, I, I think it's really interesting to think about. Um, and that is matched up against a team, which is also fascinating. The team is called the short uh, risk of short-term uh, steroids. But essentially this is based on a paper out of Annals of Internal Medicine, where a group of researchers essentially looked at a population of 15 million people in Taiwan. And they were able to look at what happened to those patients over a 30-day period, followed by a longer period after that initial 30-day period, when those patients got a short-term steroid burst. Uh, and that was 14 days or less of steroids. And I think what's fascinating about this trial, it, or not this trial, but this study, is that um, what they looked at were healthy, primarily healthy people between the ages of 20 and 64. So when they looked at some comorbidity indexes, these were actually people that were pretty healthy. They didn't have a lot of other conditions. Um, that, and they realized that they were getting steroids for skin conditions and sinus infections and earaches and you know, eczema, um, asthma. And what's fascinating is when you add all this up and you look at the population, about 25% of those 15 or 16 million people got a prednisone taper during the trial period that they were looking at, which is a lot of people. And, uh, you know, you kind of are out there practicing, you're thinking, all right, you know, just a little prednisone here, a little prednisone there, not a big deal. But when we're all doing that, what happens is 25% of healthy people get prednisone. And what they found is that even these people with very minimal other comorbidities, um, they looked at the risk of bad things happening to them, like GI bleeding, sepsis, and heart failure. And even with these short-term steroid bursts in otherwise pretty healthy people, they were able to discern a, a measurable um, risk increase of sepsis, heart failure, and GI bleeding um, with uh, the short-term glucocorticoids. So I just, I think this is a cautionary tale that when you are able to combine a lot of data, you're able to see things that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to see. Um, I think we often think a little, little prednisone here, not a big deal, but um, this is, I mean, I think we maybe ought to, as rheumatologists, as steroid lovers, 
um, we have to realize what steroids do to people, even people without a lot of other issues, even when you use them for a short time. I think this trial is fascinating. And, you know, this is a room madness tournament, um, not trial, I keep saying trial study. This is a room madness tournament, but um, this is a tournament about all things medicine as well. And uh, this is maybe an opportunity for us to educate those around us about what prednisone does. So uh, I'll put those two out there. What do you all think? I was amazed by how high the uh, the incidence rates of those adverse events are. I think we we are uh, in rheumatology. We use um, you know short courses of of steroids pretty pretty frequently, um, and usually you know because we're so comfortable using steroids, which we use at much higher doses for much longer periods of time for um, many really severe diseases. Uh, I think we just have uh, developed somewhat of a, a comfort with using them and, and probably underestimate how bad they are for our patients. And seeing a study like this, that, that does confirm definitively that there, there really are potential risks to even short courses of low dose steroids. Um, it, it makes me question when I have a patient in the office with a mild inflammatory arthritis who I'm starting on methotrexate and um, am deciding whether or not they they should get a, a short course of steroids just for symptomatic relief. Um, you know, if they're, if they're doing everything they need to in their, um, in their daily living and they're able to tolerate it, maybe it's minimizing harm to, to actually not prescribe the, the short course of steroids. I don't know. We'll see. I'm, I'm interested to see what the scouting reports show. So I'm going to breeze through um, the next two topics, which are our MSK region. Now, we as rheumatologists um, love our autoimmune conditions. We love to think about their physiology and their treatment. But on a day-to-day basis, um, what do most of our patients, even those with autoimmune inflammatory conditions, um, talk to us about? They talk to us about osteoarthritis too and you know some stresses and some strains. And so it's important for us to think about those conditions as well because we definitely deal with those on a day-to-day basis. And in this, um, in this region of MSK disorders, we have a really interesting trial of physical therapy versus glucocorticoid injections for knee osteoarthritis going up against a, uh, the UK FROST study, which was looking at um, three different treatment modalities for frozen shoulder. And that was a capsular release a uh, manipulation under anesthesia, anesthesia, or a glucocorticoid injection followed by uh, physical therapy. So for the physical therapy versus glucocorticoid injection for knee osteoarthritis, I think it is fascinating to see that actually patients that um, got physical therapy did better than those getting a knee injection for glucocortic, uh, a knee injection of glucocorticoids. We give glucocorticoid shots in the knees all the time. Um, a, lot of t- a lot of those knees are rheumatoid arthritis knees, but a lot of them aren't. And um, it's just interesting to look through this trial and, and see what they did um, that led to such good outcomes for those getting physical therapy and to think about in the future, does this patient really need this steroid shot or could I actually just make them better if I went with a physical therapy route? And um, I have already seen a little bit of a glimpse of the scouting report for this team. And I will say they make some pretty strong arguments for this team actually going really far in the tournament, just thinking about how common osteoarthritis is uh, in the general population. 
But then looking at this um, uh, UK frost study on frozen shoulder, uh, talk about an extremely painful condition, frozen shoulder, goodness gracious, one that lasts for a long period of time. And when you read through the, this trial and you read through the evidence, you realize that we really didn't know what to do. Um, I mean, people referred people for physical therapy and did a steroid shot. People sent people to orthopedic surgeons for manipulation of anesthesia or these capsular releases. And we really had no idea um, which one of these we should choose in a clinical context. Um, and actually what ended up happening in this study is essentially when they looked at clinically meaningful results, like uh, were there actual differences that meant something to patients? All three of these tended to have the same impact on patients. But I think this is really significant because it helps us understand some of the options that we have and what, they, what impact they might actually have on our patients for this really extremely painful and common musculoskeletal condition. So uh, those are the two in the MSK region. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I think uh, I'm really excited to see how far these go in the tournament, uh, see what their head-to-head -head matchup looks like, um, as well as to see, you know, what it looks like against the steroid region, et cetera. I feel like this year's tournament's theme is anti-steroid. So Pexivas showing less steroids is better, Avacropan replacing steroids, patients with OA doing better with physical therapy than intraarticular steroids. So I think this is the theme this year. <laughs> like Dr. Petrie said in her rural lecture, prednisone is poison. Just saying. There you go. Yep. So just which one, which way of getting rid of the prednisone is going to win, I guess. <laughs> well, let's breeze on through to the last part of the tournament. Um, we have some uh, topics on rheumatoid arthritis and gout. So Dr. Sagan, would you want to take us through those? Sure. So I am actually very excited about the RA teams. Um, and even though my team is preparing a scouting report for gout, <laughs> I feel like RA teams are very, very strong. So we have two teams matching up with each other in RA group. One is prime cells and the other one is uh, synovial B cells and therapy. So I'm going to just talk about each one of them very quickly. Um, but I think both of them are really revolutionary studies, like one-of-a-kind type studies, truly translational, and both of them combine the cutting-edge technology, RNA sequencing with the patient care. And I really hope that we, we see similar studies in other diseases. So the prime cells is um, basically four rheumatoid arthritis patients. They perform finger stick blood collection, mail their blood samples to Rockefeller University overnight every week for one to four years. And they also fill out the rapid three questionnaire as a clinical measure of disease activity and come to their clinic appointment every month. And investigators take this two, three drops of blood and conduct single cell RNA sequencing also perform differential gene expression analysis and pathway analysis to find the enriched pathways. And then these, they compare the findings from peripheral blood with the synovial single cell RNA sequencing findings. So they also have synovial biopsy of these patients. So they perform these analyses longitudinally, uh, but mainly focusing on before flare, 
during flare and after flare specimens. And they find that these naive B cell clusters uh, expand a few weeks before the flare. And also do you notice that uh, there is a cluster of cells called prime cells or pre-inflammatory mesenchymal cells uh, that expand right before flare-up and it goes down during flare-up. And uh, the transcriptomic profile of these cells are very similar to actually synovial fibroblasts. And the authors speculate that these prime cells actually could be the precursor of these synovial fibroblasts that migrate to synovium during a flare. So this is, again, I think in terms of its design, it's, it's very novel. I think this is as close as we can get to precision medicine and rheumatology. Um, I feel like every year at the tournament, we're gonna see a couple of landmark trials, you know, competing with each other, but studies like this, I don't think we're going to see it every year. I hope we see it every year, but it takes a lot of work to do studies like this. Um, and in terms of the weaknesses, I guess one thing would be that this was only based on four patients, right? And this is more of a hypothesis generating study. The results needs to be replicated. And uh, I think that would probably be the only downside of the study. But I think overall, uh, this is fantastic. The other study that's in the same group, the um, synovial B cells and therapy, that's also very interesting. Um, so it was, the trial is called R4RA. So basically, it is rituximab versus tocilizumab in patients who are, you know, uh, thought to be anti-TNF inadequate responders. It's a biopsy-driven, multi-center, open-label, phase four randomized con uh, control trial. So basically what they do in this study is, so they have these rheumatoid arthritis patients who are refractory to TNF inhibitors, and they undergo uh, a synovial biopsy at the baseline prior to trial. And based on the um, immunohistochemistry and also the RNA sequencing results, they are classified as B-cell rich versus B-cell poor. And then these patients get randomized to tocilizumab and rituximab. Basically, authors have two main hypotheses. One is that the patients classified as B-cell rich should respond better to rituximab than tocilizumab. And then the other hypothesis is that patients classified as B-cell poor should respond better to tocilizumab than rituximab. So in the, the uh, assess the response with C-day 50%, basically 50% reduction in the C-day score. So again, this is a very narrow study design, right? I don't think I have ever seen any study similar to this before. Um, and uh, in terms of its result, unfortunately, I think that's going to be the only limitation. It's just uh, fantastically designed, but unfortunately, results are not positive. So, uh, for example, for the first hypothesis, um, so actually patients who were classified as B-cell rich, uh, tocilizumab and rituximab perform equally. And uh, in patients who were classified as B-cell poor, um, tocilizumab and rituximab perform similarly, but if they um, uh, define this uh, B-cell poor status based on RNA sequencing, then uh, tocilizumab performed better than rituximab. But I think overall, both of these studies show us that 
um, these studies are actually doable, right? Um, and also uh, the other implication is that B cell status based on immunohistochemistry chemistry versus single cell RNA sequencing perform and how it correlates with clinical disease activity versus not um, in overall its implications are I think important. And again, as I said, you can see other clinical trials, Awakupin, Pexuvez, you know, but I think this, this trial is, is very novel in its design. It's next generation. It's uh, aiming for, you know, precision medicine. Um, and I think uh, these two RA studies, I feel like, I'm not sure which one's going to win, but I think uh, probably prime cells. <laughs> I'm rooting for prime cells. What do you guys think? I love it. Putting your money down. This is great. Yeah. I mean, these two trials, I, I have no idea who's going to win these. Um, I mean, it's uh, the prime cells is incredible science, uh, but very futuristic. Um, whereas, you know, the, I mean, they're both kind of precision medicine in a way. And it's interesting in that like here and now there's, there's increasing, in, there's increasing data coming out about synovial heterogeneity. Um, you know, you, you have patients that clinically look exactly the same and you biopsy their synovium and they have almost completely different um, pathophysiologies going on in the, in the synovium. And here they actually tried to do something about it. And although, you know, some of the results weren't significant, they did see some findings that at least would encourage people to push forward in this, um, in this space. Um, because yeah, you know, it, it does drive us a little crazy that, you know, you got a patient in front of you, failed methotrexate, just, I don't know, like, here's the one that we're going to pick. Um, and, uh, you know, same thing with CNF non-responders. And I, I, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to see um, uh, where that study takes us, uh, where both of these studies take us. I don't know, they're, but they're incredible. So I totally agree. And I, I think, um, I don't know, these two studies in particular just make me take a step back and look at the, the whole bracket and think about all the amazing things that have happened in rheumatology in just the past year. It's just, it's really, really exciting. I think these in, in particular, the, the whole field of precision medicine is so important in rheumatology and um, definitely not uh, something that we're, we're going to see enacted in the next year or two. But I think we're, we're all in agreement that sometime in the future, uh, that, that's, uh, that's where we're headed. Um, so I, I think that these, these studies are just moving in, in the right direction. And, um, you know, the, the whole process of how they actually collected the samples in, in the prime cells uh, study was amazing. And, and the fact that they were able to do that is, uh, you know, they, they should really get a lot of credit for doing that. But both of the trials were just amazing science. And I would love to see either one of them do really well in the competition. Um, awesome. Y'all want to move on to uh, gout? Nothing, nothing better than gout uh, for rheumatologists. <laughs> Right, so we have two teams. One is FAST study and the other one is ACR gout guidelines. So I will start with the FAST trial. So again, this was a prospective randomized open label non-inferiority trial of febuxostat versus allopurinol. Again, they enrolled patients with gout who were 60 years or older and required urate lowering therapy. And then uh, they basically looked at uh, the primary outcome was a composite outcome uh, for hospitalization for MI, acute coronary syndrome, stroke, or death from cardiovascular event. 
And ultimately, the study showed that febuxostat was not inferior to allopurinol with respect to uh, the primary outcome, as well as this cardiovascular death, all-cause death, hospitalization for MI in acute coronary syndrome. So uh, I think this was a very important trial uh, because gout, I mean, it's it's the most common inflammatory arthritis. It affects 4% of the adult population. So the results of the study definitely affects uh, a lot of people. Um, so in, I guess, one downside would be that it's quite similar to CARES trial. But I mean, still, it doesn't mean that we didn't need this study. It, this trial answers a similar question, but um, uh, in a different way, slightly different way. And uh, I think the outcome, this primary outcome of cardiovascular event is just so important that uh, we definitely needed another uh, trial uh, to really understand um, so I feel like, again, uh, this would be a really, really good study, but I'm not sure how it would, you know, compete against, for example, an Avocopan trial or PEXVAS, uh, but I guess we'll see. The other one is Gout Guidelines 2020. So this was meant to be, you know, update to 2012 Gout Guidelines. Um, again, gout, I mean, there's, I guess, no need to say that gout is so important and so common. And um, so the fact that 2020 guidelines are important uh, because um, the ACP guidelines, again, do not include the most recent evidence for the treat-to-target strategy. Also, it doesn't include piglotticase. Uh, so it makes the, the ACR 2020 gout guidelines even, you know, more important uh, for both rheumatologists, also for internists. Um, so in this guideline, I mean, there were 42 recommendations. Of course, I'm not going to go over <laughs> all of it, but they were mainly focusing on the treat the target strategy because in 2012 guideline, even though they had recommended treat the target strategy, uh, the evidence was really low quality. And this time, um, uh, there were multiple studies done since then. So this treat the target uh, strategy was recommended uh, strongly uh, in, in this guideline. Also, there were some, you know, uh, changes compared to 2012 guidelines. Um, for example, in 2012, uh, for urate-lowering therapy, there was no uh, uh, preference uh, allopurinol versus febuxostat, but in 2020 guidelines, we saw that allopurinol was recommended as the first line urate lowering therapy, uh, given the uh, cardiovascular, uh, you know, given the concern for cardiovascular events with febuxostat. So that was one of the differences. Um, I guess, um, I mean, this is again, this is these are very important recommendations. Uh, but I'm not sure how it's going to compete with the other ones because we don't have an, another, we don't have another guideline. It's, um, I mean, if, if one limitation, I guess, is the, the nature of this uh, paper, right? It's a guideline. It's not a study. But again, it does, I mean, but it's still impactful and very important. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see how it does as well. I, I have to say, you know, it's been interesting seeing on Twitter people's reactions to the, the bracket in that, you know, it seems like so many people have different opinions about these teams, which is, I guess, kind of the point. But somebody actually went out there and just called gout as the, the you know, gout guidelines is maybe going all the way, which 
uh, you know, just, we all have different perspectives on this. I mean, gout is like you mentioned, this is almost like the answer to the ACP guidelines. Um, and you know, the previous gout guidelines, which had recommended treat to target, were not quite as evidence-based as this. And now we really have like, okay, look at this. Like we have great evidence for why this is the right way to do this. Um, and the implications for that, you know, as you mentioned with how many people have gout in the U S is, uh, or in the world really is, um, is huge. But then on the other hand, then we have this, um, trial showing that, um, or answering this question again for us in a different way, as you mentioned about the safety of, um, Febuxostat. Um, I mean, so many patients with gout have cardiovascular comorbidities and, um, you know, a lot of people don't tolerate allopurinol and what do we do? And, um, so this, that, that's the fast study is really important as well. So I don't know. Um, I, I don't know what's going to come out of this bracket. It's going to be interesting. I know a lot of cardiologists give us gout business. So I, we can now share a trial, the fast trial results to go ahead and share our thoughts on why we can give febexostat in their VAD patients and their end-stage heart failure patients uh, and their arrhythmia patients. Because uh, like you said, our our options for gout treatment at this, I mean, even at this day and age is so limited. So we have to be able to use whatever we can. And I really appreciate the effort put forth in the study to allow us to do that. If there's one thing I've learned during fellowship, out of all of the things that I've learned in fellowship, it's probably not to underestimate gout. <laughs> um, so I, I I totally see this, uh, either one of these, going farther than than anyone would expect. Um, and you know, in addition to being able to tell the cardiologist that uh, maybe we can use febuxostat, maybe we can also tell the cardiologist that we can start that febuxostat in the setting of a flare because that's what the guidelines say. Um, so there's, there's a lot of really uh, interesting um, findings in, in the, uh, the guidelines. And I, I think that the FAST trial is, is super important as well. So I'm, I'm really excited to see where they go. I don't know which one's going to win. Well, this has been super fun. Uh, and I have really enjoyed talking about this bracket with you all. I hope everyone out there has enjoyed this conversation as well. I think we should make sure that you all know, first of all, all we've done is talk about the first round matchups after these matchups. Then of course, those winners are going to compete against each other. And then again, and then again, in the, in the championship. So who knows what's going to happen. And the other thing everyone should know is uh, we on the leadership team have no impact on how the blue ribbon panel is going to vote. So you've just heard our opinions on some things and you've kind of heard us tossing around different things, primarily for the purpose of helping you all think about the teams. Um, but we have no impact on who's actually going to win. I'm actually not sure if any of the Blue Ribbon panel actually even listens to this podcast. <laughs> um, and certainly if any of them did, they're not going to listen to our opinion about it. So you need to make up your own minds about this. And um, for that reason, um, what we're going to do is um, we're going to close this out here. But again, the scouting reports are going to come out where you're going to get some more formal thoughts on these um, teams, some more detailed analysis of the teams um, so you can learn about them. And I'm actually toying with the idea just, um, you know, in case you don't make it onto the website to read it. I think what we may do is we may actually post those in podcast form. Um, so for those of you out there who 
like listening to um, the podcast, um, I'll come out, I'll come on and read those to you all. Um, obviously, citing who actually um, made the made the scouting report, so you all can have an opportunity to hear it. Um, so um, that way, you all have a chance to really learn about these teams before making your picks. And it's just going to be so fun uh, seeing what happens in the tournament and who wins. So again, thank you to the Room Madness leadership team. Thanks also to Alan Witt, who wasn't here with us tonight, but is part of the team as well. Um, and to all of you who are uh, learning with us. And um, we just look forward to um, uh, seeing you all in the tournament.